0: Good early afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. Hopefully for the, for the time we're together, our construction project, the building expansion, will pause, giving us a chance to have uh, some peace during our conversation. You can also help us ensure peace by silencing your cell phones. And I think that uh, after the discussion today, you, you might think about turning your cell phone entirely off more often than you do. As you know, we're here to talk about location-based services and privacy. Uh, Because you're here, you're probably already well aware of it, but the mobile devices, telephones that we use nearly all the time, many of us, uh, give off signals nearly almost constantly to our our mobile communications providers. Uh, These signals help them determine our locations so that they can make their services available to us. These signals uh, become records in their databases, and they use the signals to Tune their services to our benefit, but these data also uh, become an, something of an irresistible attraction to law enforcement. With access to extensive location records, law enforcement can have the equivalent of 24 7 surveillance of our whereabouts, including all the inferences that can be drawn from our presence at particular places and particular times, including the inferences c- that can be drawn from who else is there at particular places and particular times. Under what legal standard should law enforcement have access to these records? The law is unclear, and the practices of industry and law enforcement are varied. This threatens all of our privacy. Our guest today, Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon, wants to bring legal certainty and privacy protection to this area. We appreciate that, and we appreciate the chance to have him here to speak with us. With the Senator's indulgence and, and with careful advance preparation uh, uh, with staff, I'm going to briefly go into uh, some framing, some, some roots of this problem, before I bring up the Senator. After he speaks, my colleague Julian Sanchez will give some comments, followed by whatever discussion might be inspired among us, and then we'll turn to you, the audience, for some Q&A. The Fourth Amendment is supposed to be the foremost legal protection in this country against invasions of privacy. Of course, the Fourth Amendment doesn't create a right to privacy, but it allows you to keep your privacy if you have it, at least it should. The language of the Fourth Amendment, I'm sure, is familiar to many of you, but uh, to those of you who it's not, I'll repeat it again. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated And no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Since information technology began changing, actually as early as the as the mid to late 1800s, the Fourth Amendment has struggled to keep up. In the early history of our country, of course, uh, private life revolved around the home, so protection of the home was paramount, and the Fourth Amendment seem to work in parallel to protections for privacy uh, for for property communication by wire was a struggle for the property theory of the Fourth Amendment and in the Olmstead case in 1928 the Supreme Court found that wiretapping did not violate the Fourth Amendment because it did not invade a property interest nor did it impact the material possessions of the defendant Olmstead. Justice Brandeis issued a strong dissent in in that case and the Olmstead precedent poorly served our national values for nearly 40 years. In 1967, five weeks after my birth, so it really was the beginning of a new era for privacy protection, (laughs) the court issued its opinion Katz v. United States, which overturned the Olmstead decision. Judge Stewart wrote that the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places, and his decision overturned a conviction based on the wiretapping of a phone booth even though that phone booth was in a public area. I want to ask, by by a show of hands, how many people are familiar with the ruling in Katz that the Fourth Amendment protects our reasonable expectations of privacy? Well, you folks who raised your hands actually aren't that familiar with the case because that wasn't the court's holding at all. The expectation of privacy theory was what one justice, Justice Harlan, said in a concurring opinion. It was a seven-to-one decision, so Justice Harlan's reasoning was not necessary. Justice Stewart's majority opinion said, "The Fourth Amendment protects people, not places. When a person knowing what a person knowingly exposes to the public, even in his own home or office, is not a subject of Fourth Amendment protection, but what he seeks to preserve as private, even in an area accessible to the public, may be constitutionally protected. May be constitutionally protected." The next paragraph in the, in the majority ruling fulfills the condition that gave the defendant Katz uh, privacy in the conversation he'd been holding. What he sought to exclude when he entered the phone booth was not the intruding eye. It was the uninvited ear. He did not shed his right to do so simply because he made his calls from a place where he might be seen. Katz had taken the steps necessary to keep others from hearing his conversation, even though they could see him and even though he was not on his own property. Law enforcement stood in the same shoes as everyone else, and they could not access his conversation without getting a warrant. That's the simple rule from Katz. If you've protected the privacy of particular information from the general public, you've protected it from law enforcement. Under all but a few narrow circumstances, law enforcement needs to get a warrant to access that information. Now, Justice Harlan meant well, I think, when he issued his dictum that has steered the courts and many of you off course ever since. Harlan said, my understanding of the, of the rule that has emerged from prior decisions is that there's a two-fold requirement. First, that a person have exhibited an, an actual or subjective expectation of privacy, and second, that the expectation be one that soci- society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. This two-part test, with its subjective part and its objective part, has invited courts to make it up as they go along ever since, and courts have taken up that invitation quite too readily. Smith versus Maryland is the leading example. The court there didn't even bother with the subjective part of the supposed test and assumed without analysis that people can't possibly have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the phone numbers they've dialed. In fact, people have privacy in the phone numbers they've dialed. I can't find out the numbers that any of you have dialed from your homes, and you can't find out the numbers that I've dialed from my home, at least not without breaking the law. People know that and they expect that. It shouldn't matter. But the Smith Court said there is no reasonable expectation. The Smith Court was wrong. It's the failure of the Supreme Court and lower courts to apply the actual rule from Katz that has us in our predicament today. There's an open question whether data reflecting our travels throughout the day and night reflected in cell phone records are private. It shouldn't be a question. I can't access that data about you, you can't access that data about me, it's private, end of discussion. But that bad Fourth Amendment law requires Senator Wyden and Congress to come in with legislation that cl- might clean up this mess. I'll say that I like what I've seen uh, of Senator Wyden's thinking on this, uh, the work that he's been doing. It, it dovetails, I think, or will dovetail with the, with the efforts of the Digital Due Process Coalition, This is a a broadly based group, civil liberties, communities represented, high tech business, people from across the ideological spectrum and from both parties agree that the electronic privacy, uh, Electronic Communications Privacy Act needs updating. And I think Senator Wyden's work here is consistent with those efforts. And I'm looking forward to hearing from him. I've sounded some negative notes, but I'm really happy to have him here with us. And I want to do an introduction that might be a little different than what you usually get. Because of a book I read recently, going into the, the, the cultural pressures that, that representatives get in Congress. This was, of course, not speaking of Senator Wyden, but a, a book called A Better Congress by uh, Joseph Gibson, who's a former congressional staffer, talks about the influences on members of Congress. A person with a large ego, abundant energy, and a lot of self-confidence wins an election when everyone told him he could not. He begins to feel invincible. He comes to Washington, and no one ever tells him he's wrong. He gets further and further away from his previous life and the people who knew there. Whatever thoughts pass through his head go unchallenged by those around him, like any other human being in this situation. He begins to think that all his ideas are right, and that only and that only reinforces the whole cycle, the negative cycle in Congress. So I don't want to give Senator Wyden an inflationary introduction, but I want to give him one that that reflects what I know about the man. I first I, I first really became familiar with Senator Wyden's work when I was a a staffer on Capitol Hill and became aware of his work with Representative Chris Cox to address internet sales taxes. Uh, The destination-based sales tax system that we have in the U.S. uh, could and would be harmful to to small online businesses, especially at the nascent stages they were in at that time. And and I thought it exhibited uh, some positive things for a a Democratic politician to work with a Republican on, on the House side, across the aisle, and in favor of tax competition. That's a notable level of independent thinking that is is unfortunately too rare on Capitol Hill. A few months ago I walked into a restaurant on Capitol Hill right where I live. senator was dining there and I said my hellos and we made a little chit chat. I happened to sit nearby so I got to hear all the other people streaming by saying their hellos and making their chit chat. It occurred to me that I would never want to be a senator or a representative to, to put up with people like me coming to say hey. But he was clearly, just from what I overheard, uh, genuinely interested in hearing uh, what everybody had to say and genuinely interested in solving problems. So it's that, uh, that genuine desire to do right and the curiosity that he exhibited there that has me confident um, that you'll all enjoy what he has to say. He's curious enough to come speak in all places at a libertarian think tank today. Won't you join me in welcoming Senator Ron Wyden? No.
1: Jim thank you very much and it was still unquestionably inflationary and I and I thank you for it I'm trying to figure out who resides in that congressional world however where no one says you're wrong anymore because that uh, that has not uh, not been my experience recently and uh, and I'm so glad that Cato is doing this this program and consistently you all are on the vanguard of helping to generate serious discussions about important uh, uh, issues. And, and my goodness, that is needed more than uh, more than ever right, right now, where it seems that practically anything which is slightly titillating or is going to make its way into the blogosphere because it's kind of the issue for the next 20 minutes until there's another breaking report dominates uh, the news. The fact that Cato is there to help us think through serious policy questions, like we're going to talk about uh, Uh, Today is a huge contribution. I want to thank you, Jim, and and Cato, for for doing it. seems to me we have a chance today to have one of those serious discussions, and here uh, this morning we have a chance to talk about getting the law right when it comes to new technologies and what we're dealing with in the race to communicate, to work from the road, to send pictures, for example, of your kids to friends. Our technological advances have often sort of sped beyond the kind of legal framework, the kind of legal parameters that we have, and particularly our balances and checks. Tech companies are working fast and furiously to come up with the latest and hottest new gadget. We all think that's a big plus. It's a big plus for uh, creating jobs, a healthy economy, and in the parlance of last night's speech, winning the future. I am for that. I am clearly on the side of trying to promote those uh, advances. And part of the way to do it is to provide some certainty and predictability so that our laws can keep up with the new challenges that the technologies bring. And if anything, we can further unleash the entrepreneurs and the innovators because they have a sense of what kind of legal parameters are in front of them. I have been on the Senate Intelligence Committee for almost a decade now. My older daughter calls it the so-called Intelligence Committee, and there we spend a lot of time dealing with the ins and outs of the criminal and the surveillance laws. So what I thought I'd do is spend a few minutes talking about the background on, on these issues and then a little bit on what I think is the opportunity for a bipartisan fix. Today, of course, most Americans have some kind of handheld electronic device, a cell phone, a digital assistant, a GPS navigation uh, device. They pretty much carry them around everywhere they go and subscribe to all kinds of services that support the tools and increase the capabilities. So while everybody is out there talking and texting and Googling and emailing, They probably aren't spending a lot of time reflecting about the fact that private companies now log increasingly detailed information about where they're going, what they're doing, and essentially their activities. This is not, in my view, automatically some kind of nefarious, you know, plot. It is mostly a consequence of the success of American business in answering the needs of their customers. The impact of all that does, in my view, uh, have to be taken seriously. These technologies make it possible to collect vast amounts of increasingly precise and accurate information about the American people. So it is important to ensure that this information is then used in a way that both protects the public good, public safety, and protects the privacy of law-abiding Americans. This is the constitutional teeter-totter in action, folks. Over here, collective security. Over here, individual liberty and privacy. And it is that teeter-totter in action that I'm discussing. As you look at the various aspects of the law that apply to handheld electronic devices, you see one question just leap out at you and Jim Uh, Touched on it. There are increasing numbers of companies that receive the data that reveals their customers' movements and locations. And the question is what do government agencies have to do if they want to go to these companies and get this information? Are they supposed to get a court order? Do they need a court order? If so, how much evidence? Do they have to show to a judge in order to get one? What is the legal framework here for what will uh, answer the uh, question about uh, the government getting this kind of information? Now, if you were to go out on the street, you were going into a coffee shop in, in your hometown, and you ask people these questions. I think, for the most part, they'd give you fairly similar answers. They'd say, look, if there is strong evidence that somebody is involved in criminal activity, is acting on behalf of, say, a terrorist group, they'd want intelligence or law enforcement officials to be able to track that person without a whole array of confusion and legal ambiguity. and." and problems. They would also want laws, in my view, that protect the privacy rights of the vast majority of Americans, law-abiding citizens who don't fit into that uh, category of of individuals that I mentioned uh, first. Justice Louis Brandeis once said in regard to a surveillance case that came before the court, and I quote, the most comprehensive of rights and the most valued by civilized men was the right of our people to be left alone by the government. Leaving people alone means respecting individual privacy rights. Searching people's homes, tapping their phone calls, reading their mail, certainly would strike most people as invasions of privacy. That, of course, and Jim touched on, is what the Fourth Amendment is all about. The government, in effect, has to show some uh, significant tier of evidence, probable cause, get a warrant if they want to go out and do these things. Now, if you ask most Americans, I think they would tell you that surreptitiously turning somebody's cell phone into a modern-day tracking device, which of course is increasingly easy to do, and using it to monitor their movements 24-7 is a pretty serious intrusion into their privacy pretty much comparable to searching their house or tapping their phone calls. And I believe most Americans would agree that secretly reviewing records to find out where somebody had gone, say, over the last uh, six weeks or, or so, would also be an equally significant intrusion. And I believe that uh, monitoring a person's you know movements using a tracking device covertly installed by, by the government would be seen as essentially the same thing as secretly obtaining the records of their movement from the local uh, phone company. So that's how I really arrived at the position that if a government agency wants to do this kind of stuff, they want to do these kinds of things, it ought to obtain something that resembles what we've always considered probable cause before getting access to this kind of personal information. Now, some might argue that tracking an individual's movement, at least when they are outside of their house, is not comparable to searching their home or reading their mail, because when people are moving, in effect, from one place to, to another, they're essentially moving around in public rather than in private. So I came to the conclusion that if you drive from your home to the grocery store, you obviously expect that other people might see you. But tracking somebody's movements 24-7 for an extended period of time is pretty different than, in effect, observing them on a single uh, trip uh, to the store. If you monitor a person's movements for several weeks, you can find out if they regularly visit a particular doctor, uh, a psychiatrist, attend meetings of... What would possibly be a locally unpopular uh, political group? What houses of worship they, they visit? Are they going to an AIDS you know, clinic? You won't just find out one of these things. Folks are going to find out all this stuff about them. The Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit looked at this and made a point of distinguishing visual surveillance from electronic surveillance and pointed out that it is often the case that different legal standards apply to different uh, types of surveillance. For example, a government agency doesn't need a warrant to stand across the street from somebody's house and watch who goes in or out, but if the government wants to watch how many people are in the house using some kind of high-tech thermal imaging uh, device, the government for that kind of activity would need a warrant. Also, there is, in the kind of real world, a difference between visual and electronic surveillance. Tracking somebody's movements with a surveillance team requires a significant amount of labor and resource, which means that the use of these teams generally is more limited, perhaps more limited to important cases. Tracking somebody's uh, movements with a GPS device or monitoring their cell phone is cheap, it's easy, and every day it seems to get cheaper and it seems to get easier. So the resource barriers that in the past have acted as some sort of check against visual surveillance uh, abuse is not, in my view, in the same place when it comes to the newer surveillance uh, techniques. So it came to be fairly clear to me that the explosion of portable electronic devices in our society and their ability to track uh, owners' movements is a new phenomenon. It is a genuinely different uh, phenomenon, and that this raises a variety of different and serious issues for intelligence gathering, for law enforcement, and the balance that is so essential to protect individual rights. So we then arrive at the question of whether our existing laws are adequate for dealing with this type of situation or whether it's going to be important to set in place a new legal framework. I will tell you, and I'm going to just spend a couple more minutes on this, I think it is important to modernize the law in this area, and this is a policy area where the law has not kept up with the times. So several months ago, I asked the Congressional Research Service to analyze the legal landscape that surrounds the government's ability to gather a geolocation information. They did a report for us, and it seemed clear to me that there was a blind spot in the law and that the courts, even among themselves, are uh, divided about how to handle this. The report from the Congressional Research Service makes it very clear that the federal courts are collectively Uncertain, They are collectively unsure about how to handle these issues and that this has created confusion for law enforcement officials. They cite in the report case after case where government requests for court orders were denied because the government and the courts couldn't agree on how much evidence was needed to acquire geolocation information on specific individuals. And after a lot of legal analysis, the report concludes there is virtually no consistency between courts around the country on how much evidence ought to be needed before the government (coughs) starts rifling through an individual's private life. My view is that this lack of clarity is endangering the privacy of the American people and making it harder for law enforcement officials to do their jobs law enforcement and other government entities don't know what the rules are, that means that law enforcement folks in a time of tight uh, budgets are wasting valuable time and resources trying to figure out how they ought to operate. Because the law is being interpreted differently in different jurisdictions, government attorneys have got to figure out uh, what the standards for evidence uh, is in the various places in which they operate. And if a particular judge or jurisdiction hasn't ruled on the question, then government attorneys are potentially put in the position of having to request a court order without knowing what standards or procedures the judge expects them to follow. Just picture that. You've got lawyers, lawyers dealing with sensitive matters who simply are walking, uh, walking around in the dark Uh, without knowing what standards or procedures the judge uh, expects them to follow. What ends up happening is that the government spends vast amounts of time and resources litigating and appealing what ought to be laid out in straightforward rules. And this can have dangerous consequences. It's pretty easy to imagine a case where government agents are stymied in their efforts to track a dangerous criminal or a terrorist suspect because a government lawyer makes an incorrect guess about how much information ought to be included in their request for a court order. We've already seen at least one case, United States v. Jones, also known as United States v. Uh, Maynard, where a major drug conviction and life sentence was overturned because the government attempted to gamble on using outdated precedents and creating legal arguments rather than going forward with a valid probable cause warrant. Now, my view is that this means that the Congress ought to step in, look at these outdated laws, and work on a bipartisan basis to clearly and plainly lay out a set of rules for government acquisition of geolocation information. This would give law enforcement and intelligence agencies an opportunity to get the information they legitimately need in a way that strikes the balance with law-abiding people protects the privacy, and keeps that constitutional teeter-totter in balance. That, folks, is in effect what I see as the problem. And let me spend just a few minutes trying to lay out what I think is the solution. This is also something I'm pursuing in a bipartisan, bicameral effort with Congressman Jason Chaffetz. He is a very thoughtful and uh, influential young conservative in the House, a member of the Judiciary Committee, and doing some very good work. And we are having productive conversations about how we can work together and the House and Senate can do this in a bipartisan and uh, bicameral way. Over the past year, I've been working to update the geolocation rules in an attempt to bring clarity to this, uh, this landscape. And I focused on several kind of key features that ought to be part of a new approach. First, the single most important thing that a new law does is provide clarity. The American people deserve clarity. They deserve to know what legal procedures and protections apply to electronic devices that track their move- movements. Law enforcement and intelligence agencies shouldn't be mired in this state of permanent, you know, confusion about how much evidence they need to show to get a court order. So the Congress ought to work now to make sure that there are clear, straightforward rules to to follow and bring an end to this day where there is a crazy quilt of contradictory legal interpretations and jurisdictional uh, conflicts. So job number one is laying out an unambiguous standard that government agencies can, with confidence, adhere to. My view also is uh, that Clarity is going to help private uh, industry so that businesses that find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place uh, no longer uh, are confused because the law is so murky. So you've got various commercial service uh, providers that hold information on their customer's uh, location. They want to comply with legitimate government requests at the same time uh, protecting their customers' privacy and do not know how to proceed. If they deny requests that government agencies believe are legitimate, then they risk being accused of undermining important law enforcement and counterterrorism efforts. But if they cooperate uh, with the requests that are arguably based on insufficient evidence, then then they can be accused of illegally violating their customers' rights, and there is, of course, potential legal liability for it. Second, the law should establish that government agencies should show probable cause and get a warrant before acquiring geolocation information on a person in the United States. You just can't argue logically to me. And there have been government lawyers that have tried in the past that secretly tracking a person's movements 24-7 is not a significant intrusion on their privacy and somehow ought to be done by meeting a lower standard of evidence, or perhaps no standard at all. If you put this question to most members of the public, they would consider it a no-brainer. When government agencies want to secretly monitor a person's movement, they should meet the requirements that that are spelled out in the Fourth Amendment and go get a probable cause warrant. Third, the law needs to apply to all acquisitions of geolocation information. I would argue that you're splitting hairs if you're trying to judge uh, a variety of different surveillance, you know, techniques as being substantially different. And I believe that anybody who looks at the question from the perspective of the ordinary individual would agree. In one instance, the government causes the individual to unknowingly bring the device around with them. In the other instance, the individual involuntarily carries the device without knowing it is being used to track their movements. In my judgment, this is a very subtle distinction and certainly does not justify uh, different legal standards for different methods. Now some of you may also be aware that there are also some existing laws and precedents with regard to uh, government-installed tracking devices. These laws and precedents now date back a few decades, and were written in the days of short-range radio frequency uh, homing devices. Today's technology is light years uh, different from what it was in the early 1980s, and it raises new questions that uh, do not uh, that didn't need to be considered back then. The D.C. Court of Appeals agreed with this viewpoint and said last August, that precedents permitting the warrantless use of short-range homing or beeper devices do not apply to the use of modern GPS devices to provide uh, uh, low-cost 24-7 surveillance. So the question of what standard ought to be applied to today's technologies is no longer a hypothetical one, and that is why the Congress should stop ducking this issue. Fourth, I believe that laws on geolocation tracking have to give guidance to both law enforcement and intelligence investigations. A lot of the people and organizations who've weighed in on this issue have been reluctant to address the question of intelligence investigations. My sense is this is probably because a lot of those people feel they know more about the criminal side of the issue and less about intelligence. Also, because government practices and even court decisions regarding surveillance intelligence uh, in intelligence investigations, they've historically been kept secret, so there isn't a lot of information available to people who want to research this aspect of, of the issue. So since I've been on the Intelligence Committee, I can certainly say that I believes, I believe it makes much more sense to address the criminal side and the intelligence side, two kinds of investigations simultaneously. For one thing, the laws governing the two types of investigations have developed in parallel. Often they cross-reference each other, so it's going to be a lot easier to update them in tandem rather than to modify one without affecting the other. Finally, the updated rules should apply to both real-time monitoring and the acquisition of records of past movements. If government agencies are trying to say, tell us where John Smith is now and let us know everywhere he goes from now on, that request should be treated the same as a request that says, tell us everywhere John Smith went in 2010. Now, again, there can be an argument that it makes more sense to treat court orders for prospective monitoring differently than court orders for past movements. The point is certainly going to be debated uh, in the Congress. My own sense is they ought to be treated similarly because their impact, folks, on privacy is going to be virtually identical. And if you require different procedures and standards for past records, than you do for real-time monitoring, it's probably going to be a matter of minutes before somebody on the government side starts arguing that he or she isn't asking for authorization to engage in real-time tracking, but only for authorization to receive five-second-old records of a person's movement or uh, on a constant rolling basis. Last point, if we don't move now to protect all Americans, regardless of whether they are located in the United States, I think that would be a significant policy mistake. During the congressional debate over the FISA uh, amendments in 2008, I was able to get included an amendment that for the first time required intelligence agencies to get a warrant if they want to deliberately target the communications of Americans located outside the United States. And I made the case and it was pretty striking at the beginning, the Bush administration and Mike McConnell and others said, if you include that wide amendment, Western civilization is going to end. And by the time we had had a chance to lay out the case and, for example, how it would affect soldiers, for example, American soldiers stationed uh, overseas, I think we were able to show in the digital age it makes little sense for an individual's relationship with his or her uh, government to depend on the individual's physical location. To me, no matter where an American goes in the world, it always should mean something special to be an American. And we were able to build that principle into the FISA reauthorization, and I think it ought to be... Uh, relevant uh, here as it relates to uh, uh, geolocation. So we have big challenges as it relates to this issue Uh, on the days ahead. We're going to have another uh, presentation. I hope I've shed some light on what is a murky part of the law. This is going to be a challenge. I'm looking around the room, and a number of you, I think, are Um, fighting to keep your eyeballs open as we wade into some of the challenging um, questions with respect to how you strike uh, the balance. But I can tell you, if you go into a coffee shop and you ask people about their cell phone and the prospect that something we we all have with us 24-7 is going to be a tracking device, they're going to want people like us to figure out how to strike the right balance to ensure that if somebody is engaging in the kind of activity that puts this audience and and others in peril, it's possible for the government to move and move quickly to secure that information. And at the same time, uh, for the vast majority of Americans who comply with with the laws, adhere to the kind of rules and norms that we expect in our country, to know that they can enjoy these kinds of of technologies without an unreasonable intrusion into their privacy. So uh, I know we're going to have some questions. John Dix is here from the uh, Intelligence um, Committee. We always say call him nights and weekends and take all his free time as we try to go forward with uh, these issues. He's been our lead staffer uh, on these issues. But I think there is an opportunity, particularly with the involvement of Congressman Chaffetz, who's done very good work on the issues relating to the balance between privacy and collective security uh, in the past. And uh, I look forward to questions and the leadership of Cato on this issue as Cato has led uh, so often uh, in the past. Thank you for having me.
0: apropos of the, the point about unity in terms of standards between law enforcement and national security, that was an issue in the Katz case. And, right. and White, in, uh, in a concurrence, said, well, these rules shouldn't apply to national security. Others in concurrence said, no, no, let's make a unified standard. So I think that's the right approach here as well. Let me introduce next my colleague Julian Sanchez for, for some comments. Julian's a research fellow here at Cato, and he covers the intersection of privacy, technology, and politics of necessity, and with great capability, he's generated a good deal of expertise in surveillance law, which you'll, you'll hear uh, very shortly. He's also a contributing editor for Reason Magazine, contributes to the Economist's Democracy in America blog. He studied philosophy and political science at New York University. And because Julian, Julian isn't as subject to, to uh, introduction inflation, I'll say that he's super smart. He's scary smart. Julian.
2: Thanks, Jim, and thanks, of course, to Senator Wyden, uh, not only for coming to speak with us here, of course, but also for taking the initiative to get out in front of this uh, extraordinarily important issue. Um, Actually, to to bounce off something that the senator said, since uh, we're sort of talking about what we think people's reasonable expectations of privacy might be, uh, there is some empirical data here. Chris Hufnagel, uh, uh, out in California, a legal academic there, did some uh, uh, polling and found that in California, and at the risk of treating Californians as representative of anything, uh, a supermajority, something close to 75%, uh, that a warrant ought to be required, uh, before a cell phone can be turned into, uh, basically a, a personal LoJack device. Um, so a couple of quick schematic remarks before I get into some of the technological and legal weeds here. Uh, The legal scholar Lawrence Lassig coined the aphorism, code is law, to capture the way that we are regulated not just by the formal rules articulated in statutes or uh, court opinions, but also by the physical and technological architectures in which those formal rules are always embedded. The balance between, for example, uh, individual autonomy and state power Uh, that is established by the set of rules that exist at any particular time always relies on a set of tacit assumptions about those architectures. Walls are opaque in our homes, so it is not possible to see what is going on within them without physically intruding on the home. Conversations are difficult to overhear in private spaces from a great distance. Telecommunication systems uh, will tend to preserve relatively limited transactional records about those communications that that they carry, uh, and these transactional records will tend to be uh, far, far less sensitive than the contents of the conversations themselves. Uh, And perhaps most relevant here, uh, physical 24-hour monitoring of an individual suspect is going to be uh, extremely costly and labor-intensive, and therefore by necessity rare, even if not actively regulated by judicial oversight, and such 24-7 monitoring of an entire population uh, will therefore be, in effect, totally impossible. Uh, All these tacit assumptions have, to varying degrees, been falsified uh, by technological change over the years, and courts and legislatures have attempted to adapt uh, with varying degrees of success. But the profoundly important implication of this fact, of the ability of these tacit assumptions uh, that are embedded in the balance we strike between state power and individual autonomy uh, to be falsified, is that though the rules remain the same, technological change can radically alter that balance with no change in the formal rules we count on to protect us. And this effect is magnified when we consider the incentives facing rational investigators, uh, who, without necessarily having any disdain for civil liberties, will tend, in the vigorous pursuit of intelligence or of evidence of a crime, uh, to treat judicial oversight as damage and route around, to uh, uh, paraphrase what was once said about the democratizing potential of the Internet against censorship. Uh, What we should therefore expect... Uh, is that if technological change causes a relatively unregulated method of information gathering to yield more useful data, or allows the data yielded by that method to be analyzed in a more fruitful way, we should expect investigative efforts and energy to flow to that relatively unregulated area. And as we'll see momentarily, that is precisely what appears to be happening in the area of physical location tracking. Um... Now, again, to, to dive a little bit into the weeds, I need to say a little bit about uh, both the state of the law and the evolving state of cell tracking technology. And I'm going to focus here relatively narrowly on cell phones. Um, again, as, as, as with uh, so many other things, the law that is set up to, go, that, that in practice governs cell phone location tracking, was not originally written with that in mind. Uh, The most common way investigative agencies will now uh, obtain location tracking information um, is essentially through the the cell tower records, the records that are created when your cell phone checks in um, at regular intervals, but in particular at the beginning and end of a call or another kind of data communication now with the nearest cell tower. uh, these records can be obtained by, when they're in stored form, by an order under the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, um, and when you're getting them in real time um, via what's called a pen trap order, it was originally uh, an order that was used to get a list of the phone numbers dialed to and from uh, a particular target phone, now includes various kinds of data communications in addition to phone communications. Um, and will also tend to include this kind of transactional data that will tend to reveal location. Now, as Congress began to realize that these tools that were initially intended to get one kind of data could also de facto be used for this tracking purpose, they did in 1994 add a line to Calia, the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, stipulating that location information could not be obtained solely pursuant to one of these pen register orders. And the reason for this is that a pen register order uh, is a lot easier to get than uh, a Fourth Amendment search warrant. A Fourth Amendment search warrant, you need, again, probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, particularly describing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Pen register orders require only a certification that the applicant believes that the information they're going to get is relevant to a criminal investigation. In the intelligence context, the applicable relevance is is relevant to an intelligence investigation. but this, this is a, an order where the judge's role is much more of a, of a rubber stamp role. Um, he's basi- you know, because, because all he has to agree is that they've made some sort of prima facie case that uh, there is some relation between a, a legitimate investigation and that information. So there's a much less tight link between a particular target and a crime or an intelligence purpose. Um, now, because they can't only use a pen register order, the Justice Department has, has developed an interesting sort of legal theory the Justice Department's position currently, at least at last, last time we got a look into their, uh, uh, their, their legal arguments, was that for really precise, they make this distinction, really precise GPS information, they will go and get a, a search warrant. But for this relatively less precise uh, tower information, the nearest, just the nearest tower to your phone, which um, they say does not provide the same level of precision in an urban area uh, at least their, their most recent sort of briefing document suggests a radius of a few blocks, um, what they can do is get a pen register combined with one of these stored record 2703 D orders So the standard still is, um, is basically relevance to get the attached order. They may have to also add specific facts uh, establishing relevance. But again, the bar is still extraordinarily low. Um, And it's, again, not limited to a target who they believe is guilty, for example, of a crime or uh, affiliation with a a terror group. Um, Now, the courts have increasingly started pushing back on this very novel hybrid theory that that was cooked up to allow them to get this tracking information uh, subject to this very low standard. Uh, But there are a couple problems. One is that the government has, has essentially control over when it appeals decisions. So what they can do is avoid an adverse appellate finding that their hybrid theory is no good by essentially accepting it when a judge shoots them down and going to find another magistrate judge who's willing to, to, to rubber stamp uh, the request for, for, for a location data. Uh, there's also a problem with secrecy. It's very hard to know exactly how extensive these practices are because while those stored records orders are supposed to eventually be disclosed, Those pen register orders with which they're bundled can be sealed until further action by the court. And just to translate that, when something is sealed until further action by the court, unless there's some extraordinary circumstance, that means, you know, until hell freezes over. Um, So getting a sense of the pervasiveness of this practice is very difficult. Um, Now, how is technology complicating those assumptions beyond the kind of inherent problems of this very novel hybrid theory they've cooked up to allow themselves uh, to track. Uh, Well, there's a bunch of technological changes that are relevant. One is that companies are storing more and more detailed data about more and more of their customers' location more and more precisely. This is in part a function of the radical decline in storage costs. In the mid-'80s, when a lot of our electronic surveillance laws were written, uh, it was about $100 or $180 in current dollars uh, per megabyte. Now, for about a dollar, you can get a gigabyte of storage. It's just at the consumer level, which is a 1,000 times more data. Uh, so uh, it's essentially almost more costly to get rid of data than to retain it. Also, as cell phones and mobile devices become more pervasive and, more importantly, uh, start using more applications, data-intensive applications, we need more and more cell sites. And the more cell sites there are, the more precisely information about the cell site at which a phone is checked in, uh, will will be able to be used to locate a particular target, right? The the amount of data that any one tower can carry is basically limited by the physical constraints of the spectrum that a particular cell provider is using. So if more people are using are carrying more mobile devices, to uh, to Transmit and receive more and more and more data, that the only way to keep up is to have denser and denser and denser coverage of these cell towers. So now we start hearing about microsites and picocytes and femtocytes, where instead of several blocks, a cell tower might just cover a particular subway station, or even in some cases, a particular conference room or apartment. Uh, and we can, we can see this. Uh, this is a uh, Disproportionately in urban areas, but in 2000 there were about 95,000 cell towers in the United States. As of the summer of 2010, there were more than 250,000. And again, as the demands for mobile data applications grow, we can expect those numbers to shoot up, and we can expect the radius within which each tower will pinpoint a target to shrink. Um, We've also seen efforts by the telecommunications companies. To build backends to make the process of physical tracking easier and more painless for law enforcement. So even if the judicial standards say the same, the practical costs, the practical barriers to conducting physical surveillance, geo-tracking surveillance, drop. Uh, at a, a telecommunications, con- uh, at a, a surveillance conference about two years back, uh, uh, um, uh, an executive with Sprint uh, revealed that they had uh, an enormously popular with law enforcement. Uh, back-end system called L-Site that was now processing something in excess of 8 million individual requests for information. That's not 8 million targets, but 8 million individual pings to see where a target is uh, in in the course of just a year. Um, To the extent that you can use pen trap orders as a sort of rough uh, proxy for this, we've seen in recent years a pretty sharp spike uh, in federal agencies issuing uh, pen trap orders. One of the biggest spikes has come from the U.S. Marshall Service, which in 2009 issued uh, 6,419 pen trap orders. And according to a Marshall Service manual that a colleague and I obtained under a a Freedom of Information Act request, the default for the U.S. Marshall Service is now to get geolocation information whenever a pen trap order is sought. So the default then for those 6,000-plus orders is to also seek that attached Duer that will also allow geotracking of the target. Um, Telecom lawyer uh, Al Jadari told uh, Newsweek, I think, last year that uh, his clients were getting thousands of requests per month. Um, So I I talked about one federal agency, but we've got a whole welter of federal agencies and also, uh, uh, you know, state and local agencies doing this kind of tracking. And it's not just individual targets we have to worry about concerning, though that ought to be. Uh, There's also ample reason to be concerned about the potential, not just for the pervasive tracking of individuals, but for the bulk tracking of populations. Again, last year, Newsweek uh, reported uh, that there had been a case in Michigan where police had attempted to obtain in bulk cell phone location information for the entire area where a labor rally was being held, supposedly because they were worried there might be a riot. Uh, In Texas, a year or two back, uh, there was a case where uh, a, a group of criminals called the Scarecrow Bandits were robbing a series of banks. They were identified when law enforcement sought cell tower dumps, that is, dumps of all phones registered at the towers in closest proximity to the target banks. And this is, I want to say, not necessarily an illegitimate method. Um, the, the idea was to go through and see if there were phones that showed up at a, at a highly unlikely number of the banks that had been hit. Um, the problem, of course, is that, again, if, if the standard is merely relevance, they can be getting dumps that include information about the locations of thousands of innocent people. Um, that's some things we know about for certain. Um, I also I want to take a look here at uh, a brochure that a company called True Position Issues for their uh, True Position Locant, or Location Intelligence System, which is marketed to, uh, uh, to intelligence and homeland security clients, uh, they describe the key features of True Position Locant, They say it locates mobile phones of interest in real time with high accuracy, including idle phones, mobile phones not making a call or sending a message. It can build invisible electronic virtual fences of any size called geofences and develop authorized and barred lists of mobile phone. So again here, this is not about uh, tracking a target wherever they go, but about having a location and identifying all the people passing through that location, which is a slightly different kind of concern. And perhaps most uh, uh, intriguingly, they say, it archives location information for all phones in the network, allowing security officials to search and analyze the archived data for suspicious behavior patterns. Uh, The idea here being that uh, the kind of community of interest analysis that's sometimes used to analyze the pattern of connections among uh, you know, telephone communicators, can also be applied to location to detect patterns of physical association. But this kind of analysis, be, if it's going to be done, does require sweeping in, essentially, information about large populations so that baselines of ordinary behavior can be established and so that patterns of connections between known targets and unknown parties can be identified. Uh, and I think uh, if, if we were to, you know, sort of in, in a really crude sense, think about this, in physical terms, if it wasn't cell phones, if we were imagining, uh, you know, an actual physical officer, maybe only in public, monitoring every citizen uh, and what their location is and where they're going, so that they can compare notes and see if anyone is moving in a suspicious way, um, we would think that only, you know, surely only in a police state would would that kind of practice be pervasive. Um, and, an additional concern is that low the standard for these court-approved orders is um, the FBI has sought to broaden their authority under national security letters, which are issued uh, basically at the say-so of a special agent in charge of an FBI field office without judicial oversight, uh, again, merely certifying that the records they're seeking are relevant. Uh, and, and what they want to do is expand the kind of records that can be obtained to Uh, to to encompass in toto all electronic communication transaction records, which if read literally would tend to include the ever more precise and ever more detailed sort of personal physical map, the the family circus, look where Billy's going trail of breadcrumbs, of digital breadcrumbs uh, that we are increasingly leaving behind. And the very real concern, I think, is that if we do not move to provide clarity now, uh, these to some extent, hypothetical, but clearly not entirely hypothetical practices will be in place before the legal infrastructure has even set up to take note of what's happening, let alone begin to respond to it. So I commend uh, Senator Wyden for his foresight and his vision in, in taking the initiative to address, again, this profoundly important issue.
3: Thank you, Julie.
0: What did I tell you? Scary smart. Um, let me uh, let's do let's do some Q and A. Do you have any comments you want to make to what no, Julian said? What I said? Um, let's, let's do some Q and am I'm gonna. Be light. I'll take the uh, the moderator's prerogative and ask you, Senator. Um, the following question, Julian. I, I think uh, did a good job of illustrating what we're talking about here. What the what the concern is with the idea that let's let's take instead of data, let's imagine that there is. A, a physical person following people throughout their day. Um, you re- start to realize what a huge, ominous uh, surveillance system we're talking about. I think uh, my gut is that people tend to get it, uh, and people in leadership tend to get it. People in power today tend to be a little bit older, less familiar with a lot of technologies, but they all have their cell phones. They go, wait, I'm walking around, and the data produced by this thing gives people information about where I'm going and what I'm doing. Is it your sense that 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 the location issue is going to have more traction because of that awareness among your colleagues? And what about the things they're not aware of, uh, that just, just their daily day-to-day internet use? It's not as familiar. There aren't analogies to the real world of sending an email or visiting websites. How do we educate them more so that, that all of the privacy issues that, that we're worried about in terms of surveillance might get better treatment?
1: Pro- programs like, like this are extraordinarily important because they're a key part of the education process. I mean, the fact of the matter is, as there is in the country, there is something of a generational divide in the Congress. My older daughter, who's a senior in college, came to me the other day and said, Dad, I've been studying the United States Senate. I figured out that you are in the only profession on earth where somebody your age is considered one of the young guys. And clearly there is a generational divide with respect to these kinds of of technologies. But I think, as Jim says, the omnipresence of the kinds of technologies we're talking about, like the cell phone and essentially all of the devices that we've come to see as modern conveniences, when we tell people, whether they're members of Congress or... Somebody who is a senior citizen who's involved in a variety of volunteer activities may go to a political meeting, as I said in my speech, it's not for a particular, you know, cause they have an expectation of privacy. I think one of the big challenges as we go forward in trying to move this legislation will be that the law enforcement community and the intelligence, you know, community is likely to be divided. I think there are some who share our view that this is an area where all sides benefit. Those who have an expectation of privacy, law enforcement and intelligence officials who want to know what the, the standards are. But I think there will be others who will come forward and say, look, if you once again try to strike this balance between uh, collective security and privacy, it will hamstring us as we try to go about the important work of protecting the well-being of our our people. I think what we've got to show is that this is going to be better for advancing both of the sides of the constitutional teeter-totter than what we have today. But I think part of this is going to be a challenge of uh, educating folks on both sides of the generational divide with respect to technologies. And part of this will involve, as it has so often in the past, the reluctance on the part of some in terms of intelligence and law enforcement to see that this has the opportunity to make their work easier. It will allow us to do a better job of protecting collective security because we have brought some clarity to it.
0: Let's go on the aisle, and uh, we should have a uh, microphone. You don't need to identify yourself. I'm big on privacy, and you don't need to identify yourself. Oh, I
3: am big on privacy and you do not need to identify i do not mind. Robert Shredder with International Investor. Two quick questions, one for each of our speakers today. Uh, Senator, I like you a lot, but as a citizen, I'm a little disappointed in your oversight committee. This Congressional Oversight Committee, any of us in business today know that we would be asked not just to... Um, uh, identify all the uses of all this intelligence and uh, and technology, but also to give a report at the end of the year about how effective indeed it was, and also to demonstrate what were the downsides. How many times were rogue agents or police officials or others misused the system? We as citizens deserve a right to know how effective these systems are and what problems and downside comes from them as well because we do know that whether it be an Albany pizza parlor maker or mafia people in New York obviously the law enforcement will spin the story to make it look like there were positive uh, results directly uh, coming from some of the intelligence gathered Uh, my quick question for uh, Mr. Sanchez would be um, there's a sense of urgency here in one respect if there's another terrorism incident, there's going to be pressure to push all this out of the way again and to give even more intelligence freedom uh, to collect data on all citizens. And it wouldn't have to be the kind of incident such as 9-11. It could be as simple as a few shopping center bombings here and there. And suddenly, there'll be a big call for even more intelligence collection on all of us. Do you see a sense of urgency in this?
2: I mean, that's generally right, although this is one case where the methodology, I think perhaps just because it is uh, convenient for those who use it if people are not really kind of constantly conscious of the capacity for their cell phone to be used as a tracking device, um, we haven't really seen this method, though it's become wildly more common, uh, emphasized in the same explicit way. Uh, so, So, I mean, it's just a question of whether this... Becomes the thing they focus on as the we could have stopped it, but for. Um, but it, it is always the tendency, of course, uh, to whatever whatever the actual cause of. Uh, I mean, if you give uh, you know someone high up in an intelligence or law enforcement agency a choice between we screwed up and we need more power to explain an intelligence failure, it is not very difficult to think which one they will prefer.
1: I'm not sure which oversight committee you're unhappy with but I think I get the drift and let me just kind of speak from a from a personal standpoint I I think I'm considered about as much of a privacy hawk as there is in the United States Senate that's why I mentioned that I'm particularly proud of having written that reform in the FISA legislation the last amendments to ensure that privacy rights apply wherever you are under the FISA Act. But yes, this is going to be a challenging debate. And the reality is it has been ever thus. I mean, we do face serious threats in a dangerous world. And I'm not going to minimize that. I will tell you that I show up every day, publicly and privately, to try to find a way to fight terrorism ferociously and at the same time protect the expectations of privacy that our people ought to have. And in fact, I think the two go hand in hand, which is why, to me, the most important part of this address that I gave today and why I went into some of the court, you know, court cases is that I think very often our inability to address privacy adequately hampers law enforcement because they don't know what the standards are and are uncertain with respect to coming before a court so that when there is an individual that you and everybody else thinks really is a serious threat to the well-being of the country, very often that person is able to... Go free, go unobserved, because we have not put in place the right tools that both protect the American people's privacy and protect their collective uh, security. So, to the extent that you want you know, more, in- more information, you know, sign me up, because I am always putting my foot to the pedal to try to get the maximum amount of information to you and to other citizens. Just for purposes of carrying out this debate, and I can tell you even the talk that I gave this morning, John and I spent a considerable amount of time scouring it to make sure that we were able to offer up the most substantive account of what the key issues you know, were and not run afoul of some of the important statutes with respect to protecting classified information.
0: Let's come down here, the third row, second from the aisle.
4: Hi, Steve Delbianco with NetChoice. And at the outset, uh, we heard a lot about the Fourth Amendment from the uh, crazy clever Jim Harper and some about the Fourth Amendment from the scary smart Jason, but not so much about constitutional rights from the the way-wise Senator Wyden. And so, I would ask you, does your uh, anticipated law specifically root back into that Fourth Amendment right and expand or clarify it explicitly, or does your does your envision of this law do like Senator Kerry is doing with his commercial data privacy bill where he's creating out of whole cloth new rights to notice and choice and tossing it to the Federal Trade Commission to figure out what that means
1: we're We're trying to make make sure that we're not doing one of these you know throw it up in the air and hope that some agency can sort sort uh, sort it out and by the way you know John Dickus is available you know consistent with all the rules to show you the latest drafts and we would welcome you know your your input and and this um I'm tempting to give out his phone number just so anybody can look up who he's called th- this is an area where you can discuss many of the substantive points john you feel free to chime in but the point is absolutely this is grounded this is all about the 4th amendment make no mistake about it is you know the 4th amendment and the roots of probable cause are what we are making the centerpiece of our approach in geolocation you know data so this is not something where I want you to walk out of here and say, well, somebody from Congress came to visit, and they were talking about writing a bill and bucking it over to some agency, and sometime down the road, somewhere, somehow, they're going to kind of thrash around a little bit with it, and they're going to come up with a, a set of rules. What we're trying to do, and why I'm so pleased, to have Congressman Chaffetz involved, because he has brought much of the same outlook I have to this, that you can... Be a real privacy hawk and be capable of addressing these collective, you know, security issues. And we are trying to go forward with an approach the roots of which are in probable cause in fourth in in the Fourth Amendment with all of the uh, theories that you know that un- underpin it. And I think to not do something that is built around a specific approach here. If anything is going to leave both sides w- once again suffering from the lack of, of of clarity, and I'm not going to be part of that. To, you, to your point, uh, because I brought
0: the Fourth Amendment into this, and, and some of the some of the students here, for example, might might not know or might not be obvious, the the Congress obviously isn't in a position to instruct the Supreme Court to adopt better interpretations of the Fourth Amendment. So what they can do, what I believe Senator Wyden is doing, is trying to match what appropriate Fourth Amendment protections are so that the court hopefully will then follow in behind and say, hey, we rediscover the Fourth Amendment that we were always supposed to have. It'll be a few years yet, but, uh, but with efforts like this, we'll get there.
1: You're, you're going to be liberated shortly because we've got a vote com- coming up. And, uh, yes, we do. Um, if if any, anybody has a softball question that they are particularly burning with desire to ask. Uh,
0: Let me invite one from Bob Corn up in the back here. He's, uh, he was writing about this in 1985 when a cell phone was uh, a little bit larger than a brick. I noticed that he was wa- talking on his phone when he walked in here, so his skepticism of the system is not
4: quite strong enough yet. Bob, please. I've adjusted modern realities. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but thanks. Uh, yeah, as one of the older guys, one of the two or three people with, with white hair in the room, uh, who has followed this for a while, I do have um, some questions. I, I was writing about the location and the law problem back then, and ten years ago I revealed the existence of the Justice Department carnivore program with use of trap and trace devices, and yet And so I I have long supported stronger protections for Fourth Amendment in this law, but I have a question about what we even mean by privacy anymore, because just as technology has changed the ability to collect information about people, uh, what people do with that technology has changed what kind of privacy people expect. I mean, people use services like Foursquare, where they're actively sending out their location information to, you know, any number of people. You have Twitter where people send random thoughts and actually things that probably don't rise to the level of thoughts out to hundreds and, and, and thousands. Uh, We live in a world in which people will post their amateur porn on the web and then complain that Amazon has recommended a book to them because it planted cookies on their browser the last time they visited Amazon. So I think we have a fundamental confusion about what we mean by privacy, and this relates a little bit to the last question. Are we really talking about privacy in the Fourth Amendment sense, and that's protection for people's papers and effects, or are we talking about commercial annoyance, which is what the FTC often talks about uh, when uh, it talks about people getting promotional material they don't like or whatever? Uh, How are we to define a reasonable expectation of privacy in this environment?
1: Great one, and and probably the ideal one for me to head for the door, because it is is such a a challenge what what I have tried to articulate in this talk is to what I've come to feel are essentially serious intrusions you know substantive serious intrusions into people's privacy I mean what we have seen the roots again going back to NetChoice choice and and the question you know that was asked you know earlier I mean we've always seen that is searching a house or tapping a phone call. Now, clearly all of the new opportunities for for communicating or whatever we call some of the garbled uh ways in which messages get out. Last night I lost a bet to Senator Sessions with respect to the Auburn University of Oregon game. And so I was required last night to wear the Auburn blue and orange and by the time I got back to my office, there were all kinds of Twitters about the tie and duck fans were in mourning that the green and yellow was once again, and all I kept doing through the evening was Twittering back to everybody in one sense or form that we'll be back and, you know, the game will be won. But the examples I have tried to cite, you know, t- today Really fit into this basket of what I think people would call a serious intrusion into privacy. And what we'll have to debate, Congressman Chaffetz and I, is how does that apply given the explosion, you know, of new technologies? And most of the examples we give come from sort of vastly, you know, earlier times. Even the one I gave the difference between going to the store once. And being monitored 24-7 for six weeks is a perfect example. But because you've written and and thought about this, and John is going to end up in a markup in some dark, cold hearing room at some point trying to think through exactly um, these questions, I hope hope you'll help. But my, my sense, seat of the pants, is to try to find serious intrusions into people's privacy, which I think historically... Came to be seen as tapping calls, searching homes, think, things of this nature. And more, more than anything, the reason I wanted to come today and why I think Jim and Cato and Julian are doing such good work is if we're going to start a real discussion on the Hill about these kinds of, of issues, let alone getting into the terrific question you just asked about drawing the lines, is we need your thoughts your input. We need folks like Cato who are playing a leadership role in inviting this kind of discussion. I know it's being webcast, so uh, I'll probably have Twitters by the time I get back to the office about you know how I'm dead wrong about this or that or something else. But this is the way we ought to open up in the new era of communications, the opportunity for people to be heard, for people to participate. This bill is not cast in stone in any way, shape, or form. John is uh, in charge of the draft Congressman Chaffetz, a very expert, young, thoughtful person who shares a lot of the principles we're, we're talking about. We're interested in your ideas and counsel. And as I go, just uh, special bouquets to uh, Jim and, uh, and Cato. This is exactly the kind of discussion we need more of, and we thank you for it.
0: Thank you, Senator Wyden. Please join me in thanking Senator Wyden for joining us today. We'll we'll adjourn upstairs for sandwiches and conversation. Thanks for coming everyone.